0: com this is the Brian McClanahan show Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. welcome back to the Brian McClanahan show this is episode 34 and I'm gonna do a talk today on an issue that I hope people aren't burned out on already but Uh, It's been the news since uh, this past weekend, and that is the uh, issue with the police and uh, the situation and well, actually for over a week now, the the, the, uh, incidents that happened in Louisiana, Minnesota, and then, of course, what happened in Dallas over the weekend. So this is a big topic for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'm going to take a little different approach with this topic than I think what I've really seen anywhere else now. Uh, I'm going to play off a couple of articles that were headlining on the Drudge Report uh, both over the weekend and uh, this morning uh, when I'm doing this podcast. So uh, first, the title of this podcast is Know Your Enemy. And not, uh, I'm not saying that anyone's the enemy. I'm actually saying that because of a song that was written about 1992. And so I'm going to start with a little story. Uh, when, I was in, uh, when I was younger... I worked at a music store, uh, and it was called Kemp Mill Music, or Kemp Mill Records, actually. And uh, Kemp Mill Records, it's a, it's a, there's still one left from what I understand. There's a, one store in Maryland. Uh, I didn't know that record stores even existed anymore, for the most part. But this one does, but it used to be a huge chain in, in, uh, in the Maryland, D.C. area. And so I worked at this store, and right about 1992, I think it was, there was a, a band, which is still around, called Body Count, and it was uh, it was a metal band with Ice-T, the rapper Ice-T, as the lead singer, quote-unquote. And uh, they had this album, their first album had a song on it entitled Cop Killer. And when I was working at this, st- this was a huge issue, about 1992, huge issue. Uh, it was all over the place, people were very upset that this song was on there, and when you look at the lyrics of the song... Uh, it's basically a call to go out and shoot cops, and so um, this woman came into the store when I was working one day and she brought the album in she said her son had bought this album, and she was wondering if she could return it now it had already been open and everything, and uh, we had a policy that once a CD was open we didn't we didn't take it back. but I told her I'd buy it from her for the for the price that it was because that particular uh, album was a collector's item. They had actually taken the song off and replaced it with a different song. Uh, and so when you had the album with the actual song on it, uh, it became a collector's item. And so I bought it from her and, I, and um, just because of that. But I was, I was young at the point and, and um, didn't really understand the, the uh, uproar over the song. I thought, well, it's just a song. And, of course, back in the 90s, uh, actually late 80s into the 90s, you had the Gores, Tipper and Owl. More tipper gore trying to label music and other things for controversial lyrics. And in some cases, they were successful in getting albums uh, either blacklisted in certain establishments, covers changed, uh, you know, lyrics, uh, albums with questionable lyrics either um, taken off shelves, or they had those big parental advisory stickers, which became, for young people, that was hip. You know, you had these little parental advisory stickers, you wanted to have that album. And then, uh, about the same year, a Los Angeles band entitled Rage Against the Machine came out, and this was another rap metal group. And they came out with an album, and one of the titles of the of the uh, of the songs on the album was "Know Your Enemy." And when you look at the lyrics of this particular song, it's also about angst. And if you, you look at both of these albums, it's about angst, uh, and about angst towards white society, and also police. And so when, what's been going on here recently, and if you look at the guy that uh, went out in Dallas and unfortunately killed all, all the police officers there, and, and he said why he was going to do it, because uh, he was going to shoot white people, namely white cops. And, of course, the tragic incident that happened in Minnesota when the uh, couple were pulled over and the police officer shot the, the one man four times, uh, and he died, And then, of course, the situation, we've had several situations now. The one in Louisiana, which is a different story, uh, where the guy was shot uh, by the cops. And then, uh, you know, we've had several officer-involved shootings in the last uh, couple of years. And, of course, this has sparked a tremendous amount of uproar. Now, it seems for a lot of people that this is just a modern, some type of new thing. Uh, But it really isn't. And I think the important part about this is generational. If you go back... And you start looking about 20 years ago at the type of material that was coming out in entertainment at the time, showing that there was a tremendous amount of, as I said, angst towards police officers or white society, because I mean, that's what you saw in these, in these uh, particular bands. And even recently, Body Count put out a song, uh, and I'm not going to say the name of the song because I know that there are younger people that listen to this podcast uh, but it's about essentially killing white people. And there's been nothing said about this. So this latent hatred or animosity towards white America or white civilization, of course, is manifested at times in the way the police respond to things. And they have the 60s generation as their, uh, as their primary um, role models not necessarily in the violence, but there was violence in the 60s. I mean, you look at uh, the, the Weather Underground and some of these groups, they were also killing police officers, and you had the Black Panther movement, and now you have the new Black Panther movement. Of course, they were interested in killing police officers. But it's this idea of protest. And so my generation picked up on that because the 60s generation were our parents. And so we picked up on that idea of protest and, uh, you know, resistance. Uh, some of these people would call themselves revolutionaries. Uh, and I'm going to talk about solutions and what's going on here and some of the things that have been proposed now that we have this issue. Uh, and so it's interesting how that 60s generation influenced my generation, and of course my generation is being brought up on these uh, these, this, these, music, this, these lyrics that were revolutionary, uh, that were uh, filled with angst and hate in a lot of ways. And I know that term is used nowadays, hate. And uh, I often make fun of it, and I and I make fun of it because uh, the side that really does show a tremendous amount of, of hate is as I've already talked about in a couple of podcasts, so the liberals, the left, the liberal intolerance. I had a podcast on that, and then one on the progressives. They are the side that really does uh, find have a lot of hate towards things, um, and so you have that, and it's been it's now being manifested because the leaders of these. Of these uh, opposition movements are not in their 20s oftentimes. I know the individual that uh, killed the police officers in in Dallas was in his 20s, but a lot of times are the people in their 40s, late 30s, early 40s, maybe even a little older at times. They are the ones who are reared on this type of stuff. So for 20 years this idea has been building and now we're starting to see it manifested in action and uh, I'm going to link in the show notes page to the lyrics of the two songs I mentioned, Know Your Enemy and uh, Cop Killer, and so you can read them. Uh, I'm not going to say them. Again, it's filled with a tremendous amount of bad language, so I won't say them on the podcast, but you can go out and read them if you choose to do so. And I'm also going to put a fun video on there, Kent Mill Records, in in a commercial they used to have. I I loved their commercials when I was a kid, and then then I later worked for them uh, for a couple of years. But... uh, this is a this is a big issue, for a lot of reasons. Number one, there's some misconception about uh, officer involved shootings. That, you know, more white people are shot than than black people, but I think this is this the situation we're looking at is actually going back to something I talked about in another podcast. Think locally, act locally. This is what's going on with the police is the symptom of a larger disease, and so in order to solve the problem. The disease needs to be eradicated. And people would say, well, uh, you know, I, well, I agree with you. But it's the disease is a race in the United States. And that's not the disease. Never has been the disease. The disease is actually the general government. And you can find how the general government has stoked these flames for a long time. But not only that, this issue of police is a symptom. Of uh, overregulation, over legislation, and the fact that most people think that a legislator's job is to write laws. And so there's a problem, we write a law to solve it. And when you look at what's going on and you look at some of the solutions that are being offered, they're entirely incorrect. In fact, unconstitutional and frankly, uh, predictable. Um, so I'm going to talk about those things rather than just this, this issue. Because I think it's been, it's been drawn out all over the place, you know, the, 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 the disease itself is not being discussed. It's the symptom of the disease, and we're going we're gonna to do something to, to solve the symptoms. It's like taking cold medicine, uh, but the cold never goes away. Uh, in some cases, it's like killing the body to, to, to uh, you know, kill the cancer. Yeah, you're going to kill the cancer, but the person's dead, too. And so I've seen, again, a couple of headlines about some things that there are some solutions being discussed. And then my solution to the issue, which is completely different. All right, so in one, one particular article, which I saw today, it was on Breitbart, uh, and it was about black separatism. Uh, and so this is actually very interesting. The, um, the New Black Panther Party has proposed sort of an exodus movement into several southern states to form, essentially, what they, he's saying, a nation within a nation, or essentially secede from the United States. And I find this very interesting historically. Uh, if you look at the comments, people are you know, talking about colonization and other things. It's just, that's not, that's not the issue. Uh, really, this goes back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when you had a discussion in the black community itself about what was the better path for success for American, uh, for black Americans. And on one hand, you had a group that were the integrationists. There were people like W.A.B. Du Bois who proposed, and his idea was something called the Talented Tenth, that you educate the top 10% of black society, and as they are proven to be equals in terms of uh, acumen and talent, well, then they would be integrated into society, and uh, essentially, you would integrate the black community. The other side was the separatist side, and it was uh, Booker T. Washington wasn't necessarily the champion of separation. But if you looked at his example, which was Tuskegee Institute in uh, in Alabama, uh, Macon County, Alabama, uh, was a haven for black Americans. They could vote there without any problem. They had education. They were part of the public education system, uh, and they were they were affluent. And so you had not just in in, uh, Macon County, Alabama, but you had other areas of the South that had pretty affluent black communities because they had separated out of society. And so you had another group, uh, Marcus Garvey, this is often called Garveyism, that believed in separation and forming strong strong, vibrant, economically vibrant, socially vibrant black communities within white America. And they essentially would separate. So you had this battle in the black community as to which path was better. And I think what's interesting about that is you're seeing it again. There was also the Exodus movement. Uh, there was actually a, a movement back in the late 19th century led by a man named Pap Singleton to go, and I've talked about this before on a podcast, to go to Kansas. They called it the Exodus movement, to go to Kansas and to form a vibrant black community there. So it's interesting historically Uh, this position of, well, let's just have an exodus movement to these states where you already have large black populations and we'll set up our own independent societies there. Essentially, that's secession. Essentially, that's a think locally, act locally solution. Uh, They're going to take the matter into their own hands and live within a community that they would feel comfortable doing. Uh, And I think this is a perfectly natural response. There's a problem uh, to them, the problem is they can't integrate, they won't ever integrate fully into society because uh, for whatever reason, they think it's not going to happen, whether it's race or whether it's economics or take your pick, but they want to have their own society where they can make their own rules and have, uh, and have their own uh, you know, moral, social, political, economic code. Now, whether this ever happens... Um, that's that's up in the air, but there is a a net trend of Black Americans moving back to the South. Uh, for a long time, that trend was outward; uh, they were moving to the Midwest and to the to the uh, North, uh, West to California. But now the trend has kind of been the other way to move back to the South because of places like Detroit, Chicago, uh, the violence there, uh, the the uh, obviously, racism there I mean people won't really discuss it, but they ran into that in those cities as well, and so they're coming back to where their ancestral home to the south so this is a very interesting solution um and it kind of plays into to what I've advocated think locally act locally because that's what they're doing they're they're thinking locally, and they're saying, okay, we're just gonna control our own our own destiny and our own community because this would work better for us but then you have. The opposite of that, which is the Obama administration, which is more of an integrationist approach. But it's not that. Uh, what it is is essentially a, a nationalist top-down approach, a solution to the, to, the, to the symptoms of the disease and not the disease itself because they're going to expand the disease. And that was an article that came out that talked and Obama was in President Obama was in Poland. And he made a speech where he talked about the nationalization of the American uh, police force. So what the idea is, and this article talked about it, number one, you sue local police departments. You use the Justice Department to go after people for discrimination. So you harass them essentially legally into complying with federal mandates. You pass federal mandates in terms of policing. You, uh, you give them cash and training. So you hook them in uh, with the cash, and this is one of the problems with the United States and the federal system. The states are just as guilty of giving up power for money. I mean, they're, they're doing it to get cash, and that's the sad thing. And then, on the other hand, uh, they are allowing these regulations and these training uh, episodes to take place, which are unconstitutional. And then the Obama administration is using unconstitutional legislation and enforcing that legislation to force these people into submission to bow to federal requirements and rules when it comes to policing. So this is the national top-down approach. It's, it's creating, it's, it's enlarging the cancer. The cancer is already, uh, you know, the tumor has already metastasized, and so it's making it bigger. Uh, and this is the ultimate goal of every progressive, to create a one nation, a national state, to get rid of state borders and to have a united state. And so I've discussed this issue on the podcast before, Uh, And how, but this is just another example of it, and how this is so problematic. So you have that. All right, we're going to create uh, a national police force, essentially. Now, legally, this is unconstitutional. And I'm going to actually cite uh, a passage from a member of the founding generation. His name was Tench Cox, and Tench Cox He's not a household name. He's not, you know, James Madison or Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton or uh, George Washington or John Adams. Uh, he wasn't a author of the Federalist Essays, which, frankly, were not that influential. Um, but he wrote several articles in support of the Constitution in 1787 and 1788. In fact, he was one of the more prolific writers. Uh, in support of the Constitution. Now, all these people were using pseudonyms. He never wrote under his own name. But a lot of people knew who he was, and, and he was a pretty important guy in the founding generation. So I'm going to read to you something he wrote about this particular issue. And uh, he wrote this in 1788 under um, the title, or under the pseudonym, a freeman. Okay, So this is what he said. Quote, The general government cannot interfere with the opening of rivers and canals, the making or regulation of roads except post roads, building bridges, erecting ferries, establishment of state seminaries of learning, libraries, literary, religious, trading or manufacturing societies, erecting or regulating the police of cities, towns, or boroughs, creating new state offices, building lighthouses, public wharves, county jails, markets, or other public buildings, nor can they do any other matter or thing appertaining to the internal affairs of any state, whether legislative, executive, or judicial, civil, or ecclesiastical. So remember, he said the general government, meaning the new federal government, cannot do any of these things constitutionally. And one of those things was erecting or regulating the police of cities, counties, or I should say towns or boroughs. And then he goes on. He says, on the other hand, the states, the several states, can create corporations, civil and religious, prohibit or impose duties on the importation of slaves into their own ports, establish seminaries of learning, erect boroughs, cities, and counties, promote and establish manufacturers, open roads, clear rivers, cut canals, regulate descents and marriages, license taverns, establish ferries, erect public buildings, establish poorhouses, hospitals, and houses of employment, regulate the police, and many other things of the utmost importance to the happiness of their respective citizens. In short, besides the particulars enumerated, everything of a domestic nature must or can be done by them. Must be done by them, he says. And he listed twice police. If the founding generation thought there was going to be a national police force, they never would have ratified the Constitution, because internal police is not an enumerated power. There's nothing in Article I, Section 8 that allows for the general government to regulate the local police forces of the United States. That's something that is a local issue. So when you take that, first of all, I quoted that out of my book, The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. If you don't have that one, you should get it. Uh, And and I go back to this, I I know I wrote it, so it's, it's me promoting here, but... Uh, I've had other people tell me this, too. What I did in this particular book is essentially go through line by line or clause by clause in the Constitution and explain what they meant, what the founding generation said these things were going to mean. Uh, And so you can, if there's an issue like this, you can just go to the book and pull it up, and there it is. Uh, And um, I think it's a a valuable resource. It's it's a couple hundred pages. uh, And I just used direct quotes from the founding generation itself. Uh, with a little bit of, you know, it's not just a list of quotes. If you don't have it, uh, you should definitely get it. It's cheap. You can get it to Amazon. Uh, You can get uh, a signed copy of it on my website. So if you'd like that as well, um, uh, you can get that. Okay. So let's get back to the issue. So what what Cox is saying here is uh, that we have a think locally, act locally situation. So the disease... Is overregulation. The symptom is aggressive policing. So, the solution to this problem, and and you look at the couple of incidents that sparked this latest uproar. Uh, And one of them, I think the most egregious of them, is the incidents in Minnesota. Um, Now, if everything pans out the way it's being said... Now, on on the one side, you have what the police are saying about the issue. On the other side, the the woman who was involved in this saying that the man was just trying to get his wallet. And he was shot four times. The man that was shot never had a police record, never been fingerprinted, never had any issue. Marijuana in the car. Okay, so (laughs) there's another issue. They were pulled over, apparently, for a broken taillight. So... The solution to this is not to nationalize the police force. The solution would be, necessarily, to remove the ability to be pulled over for these type of things, whether it's a broken taillight or not wearing your seatbelt, because this does lead, can lead to altercations. And I know, I mean, I have police officer friends. I have people that, uh, you know, are are very interested in, and they say, well, these things often lead to catch bigger fish when you pull someone over for uh, a broken taillight. Sometimes you get a real bad guy. The question is, what are they real bad guys for? And I think sometimes you have to also look at that particular issue. Uh, what kind of legislation are we, what are we What are we making illegal that maybe shouldn't be illegal? Uh, or maybe we've we've over-legislated and created bad guys out of people that shouldn't be bad guys. And I think people need to listen very carefully with an open dialogue to issues that are affecting other people in the community, whether these laws are just and reasonable. Uh, you know, whether we should be pulling people over for not wearing a seatbelt, whether that's even a good law at all, whether we should be pulling them over for, for a broken taillight, whether that's a decent law at all, whether that's whether that's necessary, whether that's over-policing. It's okay to pull people over, I'm and this is my opinion, for reckless driving, uh, for things of that nature, uh, because they're, they're a hazard to the community around them, and they could kill somebody else. But uh, a broken taillight it's hard to justify that it's going to kill somebody else. Now, if you had no tail lights, okay, maybe, because your vehicle's not in, in, in a situation where the, the operator is going to be seen when they hit the brakes and somebody could run into them, which caused damage to somebody else's vehicle. But just one, uh, that, that's, that's not really a, an infraction that needs to have much attention to it. So these are just a couple of examples, but there are many other things that we could look at in terms of what are police being called to do. Now, in the one situation in New Orleans, the police were actually called. A 911 call sent them there because that individual apparently was waving a gun around and uh, he was threatening people. So the police were trying to police an area to make sure that this area was safe for the people around it. Uh, So uh, there was an article by a friend of mine, uh, Tom Mullen, who talked about running the police force like uh, the fire department. They're only called out, uh, when they're needed and in this particular case, they would have been called out. So um, you know that article he wrote it for The Huffington Post and it received a lot of uh, controversy you know a lot of controversy uh, at the time. I think that some of his arguments are very valid. Um, you know instead of having uh, police uh, around all the time, maybe they need to be less around. but on the other hand, I think that there are instances where police just being there can stop crime. And one of the things that you know one of the reasons why we have this issue is, because you want the property owners, the law-abiding citizens, to be secure, have security, and they pay taxes, and you want to be able to stop someone from trying to threaten them or take their stuff or harm their person. And sometimes police being in an area can do that. Uh, They can keep crime to a minimum because the bad guys aren't necessarily going to commit a crime in front of the police. Uh, You know, the other thing the police often do are these high-speed chases, which... In my particular area, there was a high-speed chase that led to the death of a baseball coach. Poor guy was simply riding in his car, and a car ran a an intersection and T-boned this guy and killed him. Uh, he was a father of uh, you know baseball coach, father, husband. He was just a, a good guy. Here he is, mining his own business, riding down the road. And because the police were involved in a high-speed chase, uh, this guy over, a, I think it was a stolen vehicle. I mean... Certainly, you want to get the vehicle back, but there have been a lot of statistics out there, a lot of uh, you know, research done to show that these high-speed chases are very dangerous and not necessary, that they can often get the bad guy later on if they just let him go, and they cause a lot more damage than oftentimes than what they, than what they prevent. Uh, so uh, maybe high-speed chases need to be made illegal. That's a think locally, act locally thing. You tell your local police department you cannot engage. Uh, make them illegal. Uh, make p- pulling people over for a broken taillight illegal or pulling people over for a seatbelt illegal. Make it illegal. Uh, now, the, some of this is done at the state level, but maybe you could do it at your local level as well. Maybe you could put enough pressure on your local police force not to do these things because that might solve some of these situations that might arise in Minnesota. If that, if that police officer, if all it was was a broken taillight, now they're saying there was more to it, so we'll have to wait and see what comes out. But if all it was was a broken taillight, then that individual should never have been pulled over in the first place, which would have solved the entire problem. So again, you're, you're combating the disease, which is over-legislation, when you look at a think-locally-act-locally locally position. Rather than just the symptoms, which is nationalization of everything, we're going to have a top-down, fit all the round pegs into the square hole situation. And so, when we look at these issues, when we look at almost any issue in the United States, it could be solved on a local level, as it should have been constitutionally. So Obama's position in the Justice Department, these other things, other other positions that are nationalization, this is all unconstitutional. It's all stupid, because it's not going to solve the problem. Again, it's going to create a mess. And I think you can point and again, Obama's from this generation, the the children of the sixties. He's now in his fifties, so you know he's He's right about that generation, the '60s generation, we're having kids. He's a children, he's a child of the '60s, and his position is: well, number one, protest; number two, come up with a federal, a progressive national solution to a problem, and not really worry about local solutions to the problem. That's that's the uh, that's what's going on here. So. I implore everyone who listens to this podcast, when there's a situation like this, we don't need to call in the general government and say, what is the general government going to do? How are we going to vote in this election? And, of course, both major candidates have politicized all these things. And, uh, you know, Trump has promised to keep America safe. Uh, Clinton is just uh, pandering, uh, as she was going to do, because that's constituency. Uh, And Trump is pandering as well. I mean, you know, he's playing on the other side, which is... Uh, highly upset at what's going on, and rightfully so, with uh, these massive protests, which are you know, destroying property, killing people, shutting down, uh, you know, major highways and other things. But I think the dialogue needs to be there. Maybe some of these issues are real, but the solution is not. Um, and I not and maybe I think some of these issues are real. The solution, though, not needs to be not a top down progressive, national solution, but a think locally, act locally solution. And as I mentioned in that particular podcast, which I believe is episode 23, you can do these things. Use your talents at the local level. Use your talents in your own household. Work with it there and then branch out. Go to your local city council. Go to your county council. Go to your state legislature. Work these issues out there and come up with real solutions that may solve the problems uh, and look at the look at the disease, which is overregulation. You know if it ain't broke, government will fix it till it is. And I think that's something we need to understand. So going back, recapping here, this this animosity has been around since the 1990s, even before that. I mean, and I gave you a little historical example about you know how this issue and this this modern uh, exodus movement, which is really what it would be, uh, for Black Americans to the South, how it's similar to something else before, but I mean, back in the '90s, after a lot of that came out of the Rodney King situation in Los Angeles, so you had this building animosity there, which was a little bit before that. I mean, going back into the '80s, uh, you saw it with uh, you know these uh, '1980s late '80s rap groups, and we just had the uh, the film which I haven't seen on uh, N uh, NWA, uh, and so you had these these this latent building, you know, uh, volcanoes, so to speak. Uh, and what's happened is that's exploded finally here about 20 years later. And um, it, in the 60s, you had riots as well. I mean, this is just another, as, as Clyde Wilson has told me, about every 50 years you get this, right? You, you get these uprisings. Um, and, uh, you know, this is 50 years later. You know, 1968, you had a number of riots, and here we are almost 50 years after that. Uh, and a couple of years will be at that point. Uh, so, you know, you, you have that situation. It's boiling back over again. It kind of settles down, and it boils back up. Uh, but uh, you saw a little period in the 90s where you can see of younger people, you know, these, these people were not, I mean, uh, Ice-T is uh, he's in his 50s now. But of younger people starting to to play into this, uh, from the 60s generation they're starting to see some things they don't like and they're starting to talk about it in popular media and now it's exploding and boiling over uh, and the people that are in these events have been influenced by that stuff for years for 20 years or more so that's why you're seeing it but the their their solution to it is to look for more federal intervention what they need to be doing and I, and I think that you know this group this exodus group is thinking more logically that they could handle these issues in their local local uh, governments if they would just take part in it. They could handle these issues within themselves if they would just take part in it, for whatever reason. I mean, any group can do this. Uh, it doesn't have to be a group based on race. It could be a group based on you know, libertarians. We want to have our own libertarian society. So, And there's the Free State Project. Conservatives, they want to have their own conservative society. It's actually an idea to move somewhere uh, to have more of a conservative-based society. And you have your own communities. And if you think about that, uh, and I'm going to leave with this in size and scale again, a large town in the Middle Ages was around a 1,000 people. That was a large town. And that's the size of a, of a subdivision, a neighborhood. And they had all the essentials they needed for life. They had, uh, you know, an economy. They had uh, a government. Now, it was a feudal government. So we wouldn't want that, but they had a, a government, um, they had a political community, they had law and order, they had a church, they had an ecclesiastical community, they had these things, they had everything they needed. Too often times we think we need big, big needs to be better, but in reality, and as I talked about in another podcast, small is beautiful. Think locally, act locally, act at home, act in your community. If we could bring these governments down in scale to a size that would work better for us, I think you would see a lot less of these situations. Uh, even the states themselves are too big oftentimes to, to respond to these issues. These are local issues. These are community issues. And if we, if we had that control over our own communities and what people can do and they can't do in our own societies, I think we'd all be a lot happier. Our angst, our dissatisfaction comes from the fact that we are unhappy with how we are being governed by people we don't know, by people we don't like, and people who are not like us, for whatever reason. And so this issue could be solved by staying at home. And I think that should be the takeaway from this entire thing, and that should be the dialogue to discussion, not nationalization, but think locally, act locally. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClane.